How many of you like to be right? Let me ask you a better question. How many of you live with, date, or interact with someone regularly who really, really likes to be right all the time? Multiple husbands and wives were throwing up their hands on, on that. Uh, do, you, do you think that, that you're right a lot? Well, it's a pretty co- hey, I've never seen y'all this interactive. Shoot, yeah, we're right a lot. What are you talking about? Well, you, you know, uh, intelligent people do want to be correct in, in a lot of things. You want to be right uh, on, uh, on your, your football team, on your, uh, how you invest your money. You want to be right on your politics. You want to be right um, on what you believe uh, about uh, many, many things. The truth is, is that we're not all right all the time, and it's impossible to be right all the time. But this evening, we're going to look at some things in the little book of Second John that you need to be right on. That the stakes are very high, that Christians and churches are right on these things. We began last week a, a little five-week series in the two little books of 2nd and 3rd John, and uh, we are in, I would say, chapter 1, but since there's only one chapter, that should go without uh, uh, any uh, explanation. We're going to look in through verse 7 through the end of the chapter, mostly in the chapter this evening, about some areas that we really, really, really need to be 100% right on. Remember this book... Uh, we believe almost certainly was written by John the Apostle. John the Apostle, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, Peter, James, and John, John the Beloved. He, uh, we, we believe, was the longest living of all the disciples. And this was possibly, uh, probably written about 85 to 90 A.D., toward the end of the first century. And we think John was, was probably writing from Ephesus to the church in Pergamum. But uh, like all these letters, they were written not with just, or most of them were not written with one church in mind, but they were all used by God and the Holy Spirit to to minister to all Christians everywhere of all time. So let's dive into uh, this this evening. And here is the, the first big thought this evening. We have to be, we have to be right on the person of Jesus Christ. We have to be right on, on this. And, and. This, obviously, what John is dealing with is some doctrinal, theological issues that everything rises and falls on these things uh, in Christianity. In verse 7, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming them in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. How many of you... Uh, believe just in that one verse that is some strong strong language and he goes on in the next few verses and says they're lost here's an interesting tidbit the word deceiver there in your english bibles remember the new testament was written in greek the transliteration making this greek word understandable in english it would be our word plain p-l-a-n-e but we get our word planet from this word. Now, it, the, the, the word history here is pretty interesting. When the ancients, two, 3,000 years ago, when they were studying the, the skies, of course, they didn't understand how, uh, how things worked in the universe, the orbits and all that work like we do today. And as they studied the skies, they looked at the stars and they noticed they had, that the stars had 
a, a stable pattern of movement. But these other things, which were eventually named planets, did not have, in their understanding, a steady pattern of how they moved. So they called what they thought were stars, our planets, they called them wanderers. Isn't that interesting? And our word here used in our New Testament is this word a wanderer. And this is talking about not a planet wandering from a regular pattern. It's talking about some religious person wandering from the truth. The deceiver was a wanderer, but it was someone who had a little more mal, uh, maliciousness about him. It was someone who led other people astray. Someone who wandered from the truth, but someone also who led other people astray. Many deceivers who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ and coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. The, the picture of gone out here is, listen, that they were one time in the church. They were in the church. Did you know most cults, you can trace the most cult membership were former church members. Did you know that? And, and he's saying here these false teachers, these false teachers originated in these churches. And then they went out into the world. And that, that, that's not some kind of uh, idea you can't get your hands on. It's just saying they left the church. They, they went out into the world, the world opposite of Jesus Christ. What was happening here was there was a beginning of a heresy called Gnosticism. How many of you have heard of that before? We've talked about it a lot over the last 10, 12 years. Gnosticism, this is a real, real, real cliff note version. Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word knowledge. These people thought they were real, real smart. They, and their they're, they're, they're chasing after Christianity was more intellectual than it was heart. That's easy to do, isn't it? Because it makes you feel puffed up. Better than other people. And the Gnosticism, one of the fundamental beliefs was the spirit is good, but the flesh is bad. The spirit is good, but the flesh is bad. So what they deducted from that, you get in trouble when your theology starts becoming deductive and rational instead of biblical. Did you hear me on that? Ed Young Sr.'s pastor at Second Baptist Houston, he made a great statement. He said, Baptist, we, he said, one of the great things about Baptists, we don't have a systematic theology. We have a biblical theology. Amen to that. Amen to that. So what they deducted was, if the spirit is good and the flesh is bad, Jesus could not have been fully human. That was impossible. There were two branches of Gnosticism that were springing up. One was called Docetic. And the Docetic Gnostics said that no way could Jesus have been a human. He looked human, but he was just a spirit. Now, remember, this is beginning to be 40, 50, 60 years after his death and resurrection. There's still people like John alive who touched him and saw him cough and saw him eat. But there are more and more people who weren't alive when that happened. There was another group of Gnostics called Serinthians, and that came from a leader called, who, whose name was Serinthus. And what they believed was a little stranger. They believed Jesus was a man. And at his baptism, the divine, divine nature came upon him. He was baptized when the dove, the Holy Spirit, came and looked like a dove. You remember that, John the Baptist? That that's when the divine nature, that's not what that was about there, by the way, but that he was just a person like you and me, that he was baptized. And then right before the crucifixion, God left him and he was just a man again. This is what they're facing. And you think you have problems in your Sunday school class, right? 
Folks, you got to be right on Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, in my lifetime, the challenge about who Jesus Christ is or was is greater today than it was when I started preaching 25 years ago. And to some of you, I'm old as dirt. Some of you, I'm a young whippersnapper. But I want to tell you, the changes I have seen in 25 and 30 years are astronomical. The church is going to be hit more and more to be politically correct, to be watered down. And the person they're going to hit is Jesus Christ. It's okay to love God in a vague way. It's okay to embrace a great spirit or go hug your pine tree. But we got to be right on Jesus Christ. Everything, heaven and hell, rises and falls on Jesus Christ. Let me give you two facts about Jesus. Number one, he is God. He is God. He was God. And you know what? The Gnostics had no problem with that. They didn't have a problem with Jesus being God. John 1, 1, a great verse you need to memorize. In the beginning, read this with me. In the beginning was the Word. Lindsay, Brian, y'all leave that there for a minute. Back about four months ago, I showed you on the screen the Jehovah Witness uh, translation of the Bible. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to misrepresent the Jehovah Witness. I'm trying to just to tell you, if they were talking about Baptists, I'd want them to be honest about what I believe, so I'm trying to be honest about what they teach. Their translation is, in my uh, academic understanding, it's, it's uh, skewed. And this verse, and I have it in my, uh, my office, the New Living Word. It's called the New, New Living, no, it's the New World Translation. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a little g-o-d. Do you see a huge theological problem there? Folks, Jesus wasn't a God. Jesus is God. There's not multiple gods. There's one God. Jesus Christ is God. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, you know what? That's awesome. You're not supposed to. You will understand that by and by when you get to heaven. Secondly, Jesus is God who became man. This was the, this was the problem here. And verse 7, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. The flesh here literally means the body. It means humanity. It means something you can touch and scratch and feel. In John chapter 1, verse 14, by the way, John chapter 1 is a tremendous theological chapter. The Word became flesh. Read this with me. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of of the one and only. Folks, I don't understand this, but when Jesus Christ was born and that he was a little baby in the manger, we're going to be singing and talking about that in two months. He was God and he was man. He didn't become God later. He, he wasn't a fake man. He was God and he was man from the very beginning. 100% God and 100% man. In the second century, theologians began to really, really begin to write and begin to argue about this. Here was the problem. And I've, I've experienced this in talking to, to people uh, who I believe are wonderful Christians. They, we, we struggle with the humanity of Christ. 
Jesus' contemporaries did not struggle with the humanity. They struggled with the deity. Because when you see someone talk and cough and sleep, and Jesus probably even burped occasionally. I'm sure he said, I'm, excuse me, was very polite. Jesus was not crude. But he was human. They didn't struggle with his humanity. They struggled with his divinity. But then you begin to move away from that, and you begin to think, oh, my goodness, Jesus Christ. Well, it says he's tempted to sin, but there's no way he could have sinned. He, he could have sinned. He didn't sin. Huge difference all the way around. And so they begin, theologians begin to address this. Ignatius, one of a, a great second century theologians, said he was truly born. He was truly a man. He truly suffered. He truly died. Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s, says Jesus ate, he drank, he slept, he got happy, he was sad, he toiled, he hurt, he prayed, and he did all of it without sinning. That was the human and that was the divine. That's wonderful, isn't it? What's at stake here? Well, in verse 7 it says, Many deceivers who don't acknowledge Jesus as Christ and coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, that may confuse you because you thought the antichrist was supposed to be Putin or or, uh, somebody like that. I believe what the Bible teaches is that there will be one central antichrist figure at some point in history. That person may be alive. It may be 500 years from now. I don't know. And Tim LaHaye doesn't either. little Christian fiction humor there. But the Bible says that there are many antichrists. Do you know that? One big one, but many antichrists. The, the, The Greek word anti here can mean against or instead of anybody who is against the biblical Christ, denies who he is, is antichrist, or against Christ. Anyone who puts themselves or someone else over Christ is antichrist. Now, let's back up. How many of you believe it's important to be right on who Jesus was? Oh, it doesn't really matter. Preacher, why are you preaching this boring, boring doctrine and theology? We don't want to hear this. Talk about tithing or hell. Buddy, I can do it. Jesus says to be wrong on this, you're antichrist. Wow. In other words, to be wrong on this, you're going to bust hell wide open. You're not going to be antichrist in heaven. Now, verse 8 scares me a little bit. Watch out that you don't lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Now he's talking to the church. And he's not telling them you're going to lose your salvation, but here's what he's telling them. And listen, when he says watch out, literally what he's saying, Christians, be on your toes. Be on your toes. Because people from the very beginning of Christianity have tried to water down, dilute, and distort who Jesus Christ is. And if you're a born-again Christian this evening, but you're not on your toes, you may lose your, your, your firm foundation. Lose what you've worked for. Lose your reward. Not lose your salvation. But you're going to disappoint Christ and stand before Jesus someday at the judgment and have a given account why you got led astray into heresy, into false theology. Wow. That's pretty strong, isn't it? See, some people say beliefs and all that. You know, that doesn't really matter. Folks, everything revolves around what you believe. Everything evolves from what you believe. 
the first thing this evening, you don't have to be right on a whole lot of things. You really don't. But you got to be right on who Jesus is. you got to be right on who Jesus is. Here's the second thing. Certainly they go together. we got to be right on the teachings of Christ. Not only on the person of Christ, but the teaching. In verse 9, anyone who runs ahead and is not continuing the teaching of Christ, read that with me, does not have God. Whoever continues has both the Father and the Son. To run ahead means to go beyond something and to surpass something. Here's what was happening. These people probably started out having Bible studies. Probably it was good at first. And then they began to be impressed with their intellects and be impressed with what they knew and what they were learning. That was a problem, and especially in Athens in some of these areas, is that these people chase knowledge, always talk about the latest philosophies. And there's not a, it's not a problem until that becomes your God and you lose your anchor. And that's what was happening he said, be real careful that your pursuit of the next idea of philosophy, you don't run ahead of Christ. He says, those who continue, abide in me, remain in my teaching. That's what I want you to do. I'm going to say this again in a moment, but friend, never forget this. You never get ahead of Jesus. You never get ahead of Jesus. So when we say be right on the teachings of Christ, I want to give you two thoughts on this. And, and this is a, kind of going back to what I said a moment ago. To be right on his teachings, you've got to be right on the person of Christ. You say, well, that's redundant. We just talked about that. Well, when he says anyone who runs ahead and is not continuing the teaching of Christ, it starts with the person of Christ. I want to read you a quote and then explain the quote. From a great New Testament scholar, William Barclay. William Barclay said, Christianity is not a nebulous theosophy... It's not a nebulous theosophy. Nebulous means it's foggy. And theosophy is the combination of theology and philosophy. And it was a, a theological system that said, well, God is mystical. And we can't really get our hands on the divine nature. And William Barclay said, no, it's not some mystical, foggy thing. Christianity, the Bible, what we believe, what we teach, is anchored in the very real person of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's not a mystical, foggy thing. It's anchored in the person of Christ. And then secondly, we've got to be right on his teachings. We've got to be right on his instruction. In verse 9, who runs ahead of the teaching of Christ. The word teaching there literally means doctrine or instruction. I really and truly don't know of anybody in this room that I'm concerned about with this. But I think it's in the Bible so you and I can be warned about it. Do you ever, have you ever felt like you've advanced past the Bible? I got this week uh, 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 something, I was going to bring it and read it, and then I began to read it, and I fell asleep, so I knew it wouldn't work well in here. It, it was like 850 points of, of a cult. <laughs> so let me give you a few bullet points. What, cults, groups that a lot of times look like the real thing but aren't, groups that break off from Christianity. What are some of the characteristics? Very interesting. One is they have a new revelation. They may still use the Bible, but they've got, they've got some new stuff, new, a new revelation. They have a new authority. They've got a new prophet 
are a special message. Am I ringing your bell about some groups? How many of you remember back in 1993, a guy named David Koresh sprang up in Waco? He was, we called him the Waco from Waco. I was, I was pastoring about an hour from there. And uh, David Koresh, man, he, he would have told you he believed the Bible, but he also believed that he was Jesus uh, and he also believed God had given him a special message. One thing that happens with cults and groups is some of them will actually hold on to the Bible, but it's the Bible plus. They, they have a new revelation, a new teacher, a new authority, a new prophecy. Friends, you don't need that when you got the Word of God. That's what he's saying here. You, you don't run past the Bible. You don't have to. Listen, I love to read. I read all the time at home, at work. I love to. But nothing surpasses this. By the way, here's an experiment for you. Take a small book of the Bible and read it 20 times over the next month. If you're a Christian, at the end of 20 readings, you will like that book more than you did at the beginning. And then find a book that you really like, a good book, even the book I wrote, Becoming a Person of Prayer, one of my favorites. <laughs> Pictures are great in that book, by the way. Um, read that book twice, and you'll be bored with it the second time. You know, that's when I, as a young Christian, began to realize how supernatural the Bible was. Because I'd read a good book once and love it. I'd read it twice, and that wouldn't love it as much. And three times, I'd begin, why am I reading this book three times? But I've read books in the Bibles hundreds of times, and every time I read it, I get something more and more from it. You, you pay attention to someone who's moving past the Bible. Years ago in Fort Worth, I met a man, a very interesting man, who had been a Southern Baptist preacher. In the 50s, he had actually gone to seminary for a while. He told me about a church he pastored in North Carolina, and they led their association in baptisms one year, and then he began to have some doubts about the Bible and about Jesus, and he hooked up with a Jewish rabbi. And he and this rabbi kind of created a new system. <laughs> Basically, Jewish people didn't need Jesus. By the way, never forget the Jewish Jesus said that Jewish people need Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, by the way, includes Jewish people. Acts 4.12, when Peter... Mm, John was standing before the Jewish high authority, the Sanhedrin. They didn't say, hey, you're Jews, you don't need Jesus. They said, salvation is found in no one else except the name of Jesus Christ. But this man came up with a new theology, and I mean, he, he knew his stuff well. He knew his Hebrew Old Testament well, and basically Jewish people didn't need Jesus, and most of the New Testament was wrong, and he could prove that to me. And he was very charismatic. He was very likable. And, and at that point in my life, he could have beat me theologically arm wrestling a hundred times over, but I knew he was a heretic, even though I loved him, because he ran past the teaching of Jesus Christ. Someone starts telling you the Bible's not true and they've got new revelation and they figured out something, friend, that's a problem. And, and I love this guy, and he died several years ago. And what haunts me is verse 9. If any runs, one, runs ahead does not continue in the teaching of Christ, they do not have God. They don't have God. Was my friend lost? Kind of makes you wonder there, doesn't it? You don't run past Jesus Christ. 
Christianity is anchored in the real person of Jesus and it's anchored in His Word and we never run past it. Let me give you the third thing this evening that I think is very practical for us. Don't let people have your ear when they're wrong on the biggies. Don't let people have your ear if they're wrong on these big things. Now, verse 10 and 11 to me have been trouble, troubling and misunderstood. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I had a friend in college and in, and in graduate school whose grandfather was a member of the Jehovah Witness. He went to church one Sunday night and the preacher preached this passage and he basically said you shouldn't let anyone who is uh, from that group or some other groups, you shouldn't even let them in your house. You shouldn't welcome them. You should push them away. Well, my friend was heartbroken. <laughs> he thought he needed to go and tell his granddad never to come over for Christmas. The granddad stay on the porch and we'll bring you some turkey. And, uh, you know, he needed to completely cut his grandfather off. Let me tell you what I believe this passage is teaching. Most churches in this day met in homes, correct? Now, at the very first part of Christianity, Christianity was still so tied into Jerusalem the, and, and the Jewish people, they, they would go to the temple and worship and worship, uh, you know, go through a lot of their, their Jewish things and then have a Jesus party at the end there in the temple. Well, eventually, as you can imagine, the people of the temple did not like that. You can see how that would not have gone over well. So they began to meet at homes. It, 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 it's uh, neat. Every now and then there will be a movement I guess every 20 or 30 years that churches need to burn their buildings and start meeting in homes. There's nothing more spiritual about a home than this room. They met in homes because they didn't have anywhere else to meet. Does that make sense? Let's have a home church. Well, go for it. And then when you get to 15, you've got to start another one. And then you don't have enough preachers, teachers, and youth leaders, and diaper changers, and it's a disaster. Let's just stay here. Amen. Nothing wrong with the home church. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that that's not what the, the philosophy was. Is that's where They met where they, they could meet. You met, met in a feed store, then you met in a feed store. And so when he says, if anyone comes to you and brings his teaching, don't take him into your house or welcome him. I think he's talking, first of all, about the church. Don't bring him into your church. My, my friend I mentioned from Fort Worth he would have loved to come to my little church to speak to my people and to confuse the daylights out of some of them and been beaten to a pulp by the rest of them probably when he got up and started saying things about Jesus they knew were terribly wrong. I wasn't going to dare let him come to my church and speak. I had a young man when I began to pastor who'd been in a lot of trouble and and he, while he was away in trouble, wrote me and said God had told him he was going to preach when he came back home at our church. And his parents said, it's, oh, his parents are wonderful. They said, that'd be fine. <laughs> I called one of my older preacher friends. I said, what do I do? He said, you're the preacher. You guard that pulpit. You don't let anybody up there that shouldn't be up there. And I told him no. That, that goes to your Sunday school room. That goes to our WMU, that goes to our youth groups, that goes to our college ministries. Someone's not bringing the true message of Christ. We'll love them and we'll pray for them, but friend, we're not going to welcome them into our church and let them teach our people. We're not going to do that. 
One of the things, too, in this day, hospitalities were huge. The inns were terrible. They were notorious for crime and prostitution. So a lot of these preachers were traveling preachers. Paul was a traveling preacher. These, a lot of these false teachers were traveling teachers. That's one thing he's telling them. Listen, I don't want you necessarily to be mean to them, but, but you don't facilitate their ministry. You don't say, well, look, okay, we know you're a heretic, but you can come and stay with us. We're going to feed you. We're going to take care. We're going to support you. What he's saying is, he's he's saying, when someone's off on Jesus Christ, love them and pray for them, but don't listen to them and don't support their ministry and facilitate their sin and their junk. That makes sense, doesn't it? He says, don't even welcome them. What does that mean? Well, that was, that was the, the, the Greek or Hebrew Godspeed there. That's basically saying, bless you, bless your work, bless your life. He's saying, when someone's a heretic, you don't say, man, God bless you. We hope your work is successful. You say, hi, I hope you repent. <laughs> Hello, come to First Baptist. Keep your mouth shut and listen. Right? He's not saying being mean to people, but he's saying, listen. When someone's wrong on Jesus, you protect yourself, you protect your family, you protect your church family because you've got to be right on Jesus. You've got to be right on Jesus. Are you right with Jesus? A couple of things. One, if you're not a Christian, you can love God in a fuzzy way and and, in an emotional way, but if you haven't given your life to Christ, you're not right with God. Come this evening and get right with God. Maybe you'd like to join our church. We'd love for you to. And one way you can do it is, is this month we're having a, a membership. You can join for free tonight, right? When we, when we stay, you can come and join us. Listen, I want to tell you, we're not perfect, but we love and we lift up the true Jesus. Come and join us tonight. Christian, maybe tonight where you're standing or at the altar, you need to repent. Or you need to make a fresh commitment to, to digging in your Bible and staying dug in with Jesus Christ. Let's stand. And as God leads you this evening, respond to